please welcome Julia LaRoche and Stephen Schwartzman. Steve Schwartzman, CEO of the Blackstone Group and the best-selling author of What It Takes. It's so great to be back with you again. Good to see you again. All right, well, Steve, the last time we talked, you gave me an answer to a question that I asked you about that you didn't think that you would be hired at Blackstone if you were to apply today. So my follow-up to that is, do you worry that Blackstone and maybe other firms might be missing out on the next Steve Schwartzman? Well, I, I think it's always hard uh, to know exactly who to pick when you have a qualified uh, pool. I, I'm quite sure, unfortunately, I wouldn't be picked because I wasn't uh, Magna or Summa. Uh, and um, we, we, we talked at our management committee uh, uh, about this issue. And, and I asked how many of you were only like eight people, nine people. How many of you were Magna or Summa? One hand went up. How many of you were cum laude? No other hands went up. So the rest of us were like generic people. Uh, and uh, we're pretty flexible. Uh, and, you know, as organizations grow, uh, you, you end up, you know, uh, sometimes hiring really uh, very bright uh, people. But I, I think um, that people who have a balance, you know, it, it's good to be smart, um, obviously, uh, but, but having leadership skills is really important. And, and playing sports is good too, and the reason for that is you learn to take pain, uh, and it's it's not easy to be successful. Um, you know, it, it requires a lot of effort, uh, a lot of setbacks. Uh, it's a little bit like sports; you get thrown on the ground. You you got to get up. Uh, so um, we, we we hire less than one percent of the people who apply. It's it's surreal. Uh, and we, we have amazing people, uh, but we, we, we always make sure that we have a few of them, like, like myself, with more generalized skills. And it's some, something we're always refining. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been in this business for decades. I do want to go back and revisit some of your early years. In your book, you wrote that at DLJ, I was never trained properly. I would cower in my office hoping no one noticed me, scared that I would be found out as ignorant or incompetent. I must have been the biggest buyer of antiperspirant on the east side of Manhattan. And then when you were at Lehman Brothers, you told this story about working months on this fairness opinion. You submit it. You're so proud of it. And then you get this phone call from your boss that there's a typo on page 56. So. I have to ask you, how formative were those experiences, and how did it shape the way you built the culture at Blackstone? Yeah, well, um, everybody knows that sometimes when you start out, uh, it's a rough ride. Uh, and it, it, was, it was definitely rough for me. I had no training. And I was, I was like the person in, in a class at school who, whenever they asked somebody to open the class, you, you try and position yourself behind somebody else's head uh, so, so you wouldn't get called on. Uh, and that was because I wasn't trained. And, and so um, what happens is, is when you have these bad experiences, uh, you, you don't forget. Uh, and when you, you sort of make a, you know, sort of a vow to yourself that, that if you ever got into a position uh, of authority, you wouldn't do that to anybody else. Mm -hmm. you, you, want thing, you want people to, to be as prepared as they can be. You want as low as, low as stress environment for them. You, you want them to understand that they can ask questions. 
I'm in the financial business, and almost everything's been invented before you did it, you know, certainly for your first few years. So let's, let's not have you struggle. It's, it's absolutely okay to ask questions to, to, as a shortcut. Uh, you're not allowed to ask the same question over and over again, which means you've learned nothing. Uh, but the idea that you have to struggle, uh, let's, let's eliminate that. And so each of these um, uh, unhappy uh, experiences, uh, we have a great training program now because I want everybody to be trained. I, I want everybody to be comfortable. Well, I do want to also talk about the fact that you excelled from an early age on Wall Street. I think you were one of the youngest managing directors at Lehman Brothers by age 31. Um, but fast forward to today, and then even looking out in the future, how do you think the financial services industry has changed, and is it still a viable place for young people to go? Yeah, it's a financial business is, is still really good. It's just changed. Uh, uh, and as long as you're printing in the United States an extra trillion dollars a year, uh, of money uh, over and above what you would normally do with these deficits, there's always plenty of money uh, and plenty of new things uh, that you can do. Um, at, at places that are larger, our place has uh, 2,500 people, so it's not that big. Uh, you, you design uh, people's careers, so, so if you're really terrific, you, you move faster. The, the idea that the world has to be rigid uh, to make life easy uh, discourages having, you know, people of uh, great uh, talent. And I, I, I love people who have talent. I was, I was always sort of a bit frustrated by being held back. And why, why should we do that? Uh, so, so you don't have to be a big thinker. You just look at things that don't make sense and say, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I also think it's also interesting. You have these rules for life. You talk about finding problems and solving them. You say that there's nothing more interesting to people than their own problems. Think about what others are dealing with and try to come up with ideas to help them. I mean, it makes me think of when you were in high school, you brought on a cool rock band. You changed the rules at Yale so women could spend the night on dorms. You also made sure that the folks you're in the army with got fed. They weren't feeding them breakfast when they were doing their morning tours. And you also solved problems, whether it was business school, Wall Street. So what was the inflection point for you that you were looking to solve problems in your life and realize, hey, this is actually good for being successful? Well, um, whenever you're in, in any kind of situation, uh, the reason you're there is something's going on. And, and what you really want to know uh, is what is the problem that you're solving? And the only way you learn that is, is you think you have an idea, but it's really the other person you have to understand. And, and what's, what's on their mind? And uh, how do you address uh, their issues? If, if you're like a long, young person, make pretend you're, you're in an advisory capacity. Uh, all you want to know uh, from your client is what are you worried about? What are you thinking about? Um, and it, 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 once you understand that, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to create solutions. If you're just guessing about what, what's on their mind, you'll, you'll waste a lot of time and, and maybe not get the right thing. Well, I do want to talk about the problems that this generation will be facing. Um, right now, we're in the middle of trade negotiations. And I know you wrote about this. You are involved in that process. It's been ongoing. You write that it's some of the most 
difficult negotiations you've ever experienced. So, Steve, are we going to see a deal anytime soon? And what has to happen for us to see a deal? Well, that's, that's almost an unfair question because the Chinese are sitting in a room uh, either right now or they just broke with the Americans. So it'll be announced. And what, what I uh, think might happen today do doesn't really matter because today's almost over. Uh, and we'll all know uh, where things are. But fundamentally, um, we're asking the Chinese to uh, change their system. Uh, and their system uh, was brilliantly uh, designed as an emerging market, developing market economy, uh, so, so that much like the Americans in the 19th century, people forget we had very high tariffs. We were a small country. We had you know, the ability to protect uh, you know, our nascent industries. And China just started doing this 40 years ago. And, and they've had an astonishing result. Um, you know, they, 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 40 years ago, they had GDP per capita of a few hundred dollars, and, and now it's $10,000, and it's going up at $1,000 a year. Uh, so, so China has done some remarkable things, but they've done it in, in ways that are inconsistent uh, with the developed world. They have very high tariffs and taxes, three times as high uh, to bring a product into China as it is for China to sell one in the United States. You would assume, if that were the case, the, the person who gets in at a very cheap price would do better, and, and they do. Uh, it's the same way with markets opening. It's selectively open, but not like the US has been. And, and so uh, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a time for adjustment. The question is, how fast will an adjustment come? Over what time frame, and how dramatically at each point, because no one would give up their entire system because someone else asked them to do it. So we're doing the asking, and they have their own internal politics. They've got their hardliners, which is basically, things have been really good for us, mm -hmm. plus we don't like being pushed around, uh, which they were you know, by, by the developed world for the last 100 to 200 years, and they don't like it. Um, on the other hand, you have the reformers who say, look, we realize that we, we should be more open. We'll, we'll learn best practices uh, from the West. It'll be good for us. So in a way, uh, these negotiations are um, somewhat hostage uh, to, to what China wants to do. Uh, and, and there are two elements in China. Just like we have internal politics in the United States, um, our, our view that they're a monolith and they don't have internal points of view is wrong. So, so we'll see what's happening. It's an exciting time now. Are you optimistic? Um, it depends on what criteria. If you're looking for a full solution uh, to the differences between uh, the US and China, uh, that's not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're looking for, for something less than that, uh, we'll, we'll have to see what China is prepared to put on the table. Well, Steve, you're no stranger to the White House. I know you've engaged with several administrations, and you wrote about this in the book that, quote, from the moment Donald Trump was elected president, I had been getting calls from people who did not know what to make of him. They had listened to him during the campaign and were nervous about what he might do. So what do you tell folks? What do people get wrong about President Trump? 
Well, that, that would take a long time uh, to, to answer that question. But if you could uh, you know, narrow it down to one thing that people get wrong. Well, um, I, 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 I had a lot of people from foreign countries as well as, well as domestic people uh, sort of approach me. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump lived in New York. Uh, you know, for his whole life, and we're in New York now, and New York isn't as big a town uh, as it seems on the outside. And, and so a lot of people knew, uh, uh, knew, knew Donald Trump, and um, nobody knew what he would be like uh, in a presidential uh, position. Um, and, and so they were basically without uh, any knowledge and, and had a lot of concerns about it. And so, you know, I, I would meet with them and see what was on their mind and see if I could solve some of the issues. But, you know, one, one of the things um, is, is that um, all, all of these tweets are, are not worth listening to. Uh, and for some reason, everybody is focused on them all. And I, I never have been. Uh, you know, some of them are just indicative of sort of a general area of concern uh, and aren't meant to be taken literally. And, you know, with today's news media, um, it doesn't matter whether it's left or right, uh, people just hang on every word. Uh, I, I've always thought that would drive them sort of nuts, and that's, that's where they've ended up uh, as a society. And, you know, I think you have to wait to see something of uh, real importance that's um, more considered, but that, that's not what the media is doing. Um, and, and so you get all this uh, uh, confusion uh, and uh, focus where there probably shouldn't be focus, but it's just my point of view. All right, well, we are coming up on the 2020 election, and you are the son of a dry goods seller. You are the American dream. You are now the 100th richest person in the world, according to the Forbes list. But as we approach the election, you're seeing more and more candidates come out proposing a wealth tax. You have one who says billionaires shouldn't exist. You're also seeing polls that are more favorable towards socialism. So what is your response to that? Well, there are a bunch of different uh, responses uh, as to this thing about billionaires uh, shouldn't exist. That if you look at who these people are, uh, they, they didn't become prosperous sitting and just watching uh, television. Uh, these are people who started businesses. And every place where everybody works was started by somebody. Uh, and, and that's the way the world works. And, and the people who take that risk and start those businesses and end up, you know, either you're hiring 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people. That's where people work. Uh, and those people make more money. Uh, and, and what happens is they become uh, affluent. Most of them fail, by the way. Nine out of 10 businesses that are started result in failure. So if, so if you're one of the people who make it through that, you're providing employment and prosperity and in effect tax revenue. And, and you have a bunch compared to other people. Uh, and then uh, you get older and you pass away 
and, and, and the laws, uh, you know, sort of tax away uh, most of what you uh, have owned. It's already, it's already been taxed once already, typically. Uh, and then that's dispersed, and, and then that wealth disappears. You know, uh, and, and, and so that's, um, that, that's, what, that's how these people get created. Uh, and, um, you know, in, in terms of a wealth tax, um, I, I, I don't remember whether t there are 210 or 220 countries in the world, and only four of them have a wealth tax. If it was such a good idea, and it was so easy to raise money, you'd have loads of them. You've had more than four, and they give it up. So why did they give it up? So, so Yahoo uh, addresses a lot of younger people, people who want to start uh, businesses. And, and here's how this would work if you were trying to start uh, a business and you got venture capital money. Uh, make pretend that you were successful uh, and your company, make it really a good success, uh, was um, worth a billion dollars on a valuation basis. And you started it. Uh, so you had $300 million of the billion. Uh, but you probably had um, a salary of somewhere around $300,000. So, so what would happen is you'd end up with $150,000 after tax. And if you had a 1% tax, you'd owe another $3 million. So how are you going to pay $3 million of taxes when you only have $150,000. So this would be a terrible situation to have created something, be successful, and be hemorrhaging financially. So that's how a wealth tax works. And what would happen with that person is they would not want to stay in the United States. And leave. They would leave, but what's more important is people who would come here to start businesses wouldn't come because the success would be taxed away in a wealth tax. And, and so what is logical is those people would find another place to go and there would be another ecosystem developed. You would have, I think, countries offering them tax-free zones to do their business. Uh, and you would basically create a huge dislocation for the United States. So, so I, th I think there are reasons why wealth taxes don't exist. Uh, and I just gave you one of several. Well, uh, before we let you go, um, you're a problem solver. You look for big problems and you want to find solutions. We're starting to see some of your peers, I'm thinking Ray Dalio of Ridgewater Associates, um, Salesforce's Mark Benioff come out and say the current capital system is broken. So using that problem solver mentality, Steve, how would you advise that we fix it? Well, I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that um, as a result of a Fed study done two years ago, that 40% of Americans, the Fed said, uh, couldn't write a $400 check in an emergency. So what that means is this 40% of the population basically doesn't have savings. And they are having a really, really tough time, which is why our politics has become uh, poisonous, uh, because, because we've got a large percentage of our population uh, that's not doing well. 
And um, I, I think you have to address that. Now, first, you, you have to uh, provide more money uh, for these people. Uh, and I think there are a lot of different policy approaches. I, I think a good place to start uh, is to increase the minimum wage uh, up to $15. Uh, this is actually a tax on the business community, right? Uh, you know, because you're taking profits away from them uh, to, to give them to uh, uh, workers. That takes care uh, of, of, of significantly increasing money for 15% of the population. Uh, but what happens is the people who used to be getting more than the minimum wage, they have to be boosted up when you're close to doubling. So, so this ends up affecting somewhere around 35% of the population. Uh, and, and it's got lots of knock-on uh, effects. That's the first thing. But capitalism uh, isn't uh, broken per se. Uh, what, what's been broken is our educational system. So, so when I was younger, um, which apparently was a long time ago, but I didn't get the, the word on it, um, that, that the US was one of the top two or three education systems in the world. We've now fallen somewhere between number 25 and 30. And in math, we're solidly in the 30s. If you're producing a workforce that is dramatically inferior to competitors on the global scale, we're going to have a lot of trouble. Uh, I was just in China uh, a few weeks ago, and I was meeting with the, one of the top few people in, the, in, the, in their government. And, and he was telling me, he said, you know what we're going to do in, um, in education? We spent an hour on education. And he said, we're going to uh, require that every student in China take computer science. And I'm sitting there going, OMG. <laughs> in the United States, we probably have 5% of our primary and secondary students taking computer science. It is not capitalism that's broke. Imagine we're competing with a country where everybody is computer literate and we've got hardly anybody. This is not a recipe for long-term success. Uh, and and it's, it's not about capitalism. We have to put the best possible individuals and, 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 and training uh, on the playing field. Uh, that's how you win uh, the game. Uh, and we're just not uh, doing what we need to do in, in that area. And if you deliver those people to a workforce, you're, you're really disadvantaged. So I have a slightly different take. Uh, you know, um, uh, these, these are government issues, uh, by the way. Uh, they're, they're not business uh, issues. But there are a lot of things that business can do to help train people. We have to do that. You know, we, we have to make sure that students who aren't necessarily on a college track do stuff like they do in Germany, where the business community, you know, trains those people for real jobs, takes them on board, uh, and gives them good careers. So we have a lot of levers uh, that we can play with uh, to have better outcomes 
for the people in the country, and, and we have to do that. This is not optional. Well, you know what I think? These sound like generational opportunities. Stephen Schwarzman, CEO of the Blackstone Group, thank you so much for joining us at the Yahoo Finance All Market Summit. We'll now be joined by Yahoo Finance's Editor-in-Chief Andy Sower for some closing remarks. Okay. Thank you guys, good. Um, first of all, thank you guys, Julia and Steve, for that really insightful conversation. That was, that was a great way to end the day. And I just hope that everyone had as wonderful a time as I did. I thought it was really, really awesome. Um, so thank you all so much to everyone here in New York. Thank you to everyone who is watching the live stream. Thank you to our sponsors, Accenture, Edelman, McKinsey, and Vault 12. And then also thank you to everyone from Yahoo Finance and to the wonderful crew who produced this. Thanks to Jen Rogers and Brian Chung. Thank you all so much. We'll see you again next year. Thank you. Have a great day.